This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool. From Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 143. My name is Arvin, joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody! It's playoff time. We have waited for so long for this to happen. You you have no idea how happy we are to have something we can actually discuss that means something. (laughs) (laughs) I hope we did our best to try and put content out for you. We care about you, we love you, we want you to be entertained, but... I think it's a lot easier for everyone involved when there are things with actual stakes to talk about. And we kind of knew the Leafs were going to make the playoffs, arguably in January, but definitely by the end of March or so. So, yeah, we've been building towards this for quite some time. And we're relieved to be here with you. Thank you for tuning in as we try and break down our opponent a little bit. It's going to yeah, be the theme. So this, this, this pod is really, it's going to be all about the Leafs and Habs. And... and- Really, a focus more on the Habs. You know, we, we talk about the Leafs all the time. Uh, everyone here knows about the Leafs. So a lot of what we're going to discuss today is really kind of talking about the Habs, what they do well, what they do poorly, their general trends. Um, but, you know, we would be remiss to not start with a little bit of media navel-gazing. Mm-hmm. Um, because, so, I mean, the Leafs and Habs are playing. It's obviously a huge, huge, huge deal in Canadian sports media. Because yeah. this hasn't happened in forever, and it's the two biggest fan bases in Canada. Um, the two oldest fan bases both starved for success to varying degrees over the last 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's a big deal. Um, but so much of the discussion about this, at least to my eye, and of course, you know, I'm biased here as a Leafs fan. But so much of the discussion has been weirdly centered on, through the paradigm that the Leafs have to prove that they can handle Montreal. That, like, Montreal is some unique threat to the Leafs in a way that other teams aren't. And to an extent, I get this. The Leafs have done nothing in the playoffs. We haven't earned any benefit of the doubt whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I get that. But it does seem a little weird when there's a team who we've outperformed in, like, each of the past three seasons in the regular season, um, who's, you know, only playoff success in that time, I believe, is a is a five-game series win over, over Pittsburgh last year. Mm-hmm. They're being treated as if it's like, oh, this is going to be a really stiff, tough challenge for the Leafs. I don't, I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. This is going to be really hard. It's like, I, I do believe the Habs are a challenge. I don't believe this is going to be a walkover. But I think every honest analysis of this series needs to start by saying the Leafs have been the better team this year. The Leafs were the better team through the regular season last year. And... On talent, on on paper, the Leafs look like the better team, and the Leafs should be favorites. And there are you know two conditions in which that may not be true, depending on what you believe, and we'll discuss those conditions as the pod goes on. But yeah, like I think it's worth level setting here and saying off the top, the Leafs are favorites in this series. That does not mean it's going to be easy. That does not mean anything is guaranteed. That does not mean you know it doesn't mean anything about anything other than the fact that. I think it's more likely for the Leafs to win this series than for the Habs to win this series. And I struggle to find a rationale that would, a logical rationale that would lead one into thinking otherwise besides, you know, Leafs fan pessimism Mm -hmm. or kind of Leafs hatred and skepticism based on really small playoff samples in the past with different teams. Yeah. I think the reality is, one, the Leafs beating the Habs is the obvious outcome. 
The Leafs finished way ahead of them in the standings. The Leafs were generally better statistically by the end of the year. It looks like this should be a pretty clean win for Toronto. That's not that interesting. That is the dog bites man of headlines. And I'm not saying that it's all tailored to narrative or something, but I think if you're coming at this and you want to analyze this and stir up some buzz or just create something that people are going to want to hear or read or listen to, I think that you might want to emphasize, okay, but how could this go wrong for Toronto? How does the upset take place? And that's interesting. That's relevant because the Habs do have a chance in this series and it's worth kind of sussing out what would that look like. And we are going to try and look at this. This is sort of a know your enemy pod, as Arvin was saying off the top. It's kind of a given. If you've listened to us, you will know all about the Leafs. We will talk about them, obviously, in the context of going up against the Habs. But this is, uh, okay, what are we up against? And how should we adapt to it? How should the Leafs adapt to it? What should we be looking for? And so I do want to emphasize on the same note as what Arvin said. When I'm saying, okay, here are some good players. Here are some threats, some dangers to the Leafs. These are things that the Habs are going to need to pull off the upset. But to be clear, I don't think that there's a way to look at this series reasonably and bet on the Habs to win it unless you believe one of two things. One, you have to believe that the Leafs are in some way inherently flawed in a way that shows up in the playoffs but not in the regular season where they fold when the pressure gets tough. So you have to believe that the playoffs are a very different animal even if they're against a team that hasn't looked that great lately. And it's going to show when push comes to shove. And or you have to believe that Carey Price particularly has some sort of greater goaltending ability in the playoffs that is going to show up and enable him to steal the series. We'll talk a bit more about those as we go through. I don't believe either of those things. Except when I'm having a nightmare. But generally speaking, I think that the Leafs should be favored. So... Yeah, that's kind of our, our starting point. Um, now, we've talked a lot about the Habs throughout the year. And we've generally been, I think, more respectful of their abilities, maybe, than a lot of people. Certainly under Julian. Yes, yeah, we were. And we said, look, this is probably our least favorite opponent. Uh, I think we said that about six weeks to two months ago on yeah, an episode. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting what's happened in the in the six weeks to two months since we said that. Yeah. Um, the Habs have cratered. They have really struggled. Now, they're still getting shots. But when we did that preview pod, we were looking at the Habs and we were saying, this is a team that is killing it five on five. And I want to emphasize, this wasn't just we were looking at fancy nerd stats and being like, oh, well, you know, the Corsi and the expected goals. Those were good. We respect those. But they were also just straight up outscoring teams. They were winning at 5-on-5 in goals. Most important thing in the game. They have struggled a lot in the last six weeks, and it coincides pretty exactly with Brendan Gallagher getting hurt. Mm -hmm. And they've had injuries and absences since. Uh, Philip Deneau has missed a bit of time. Thomas Tatar was absent briefly. Shea Weber has been out. But the result is that they've gotten worse at pretty much everything, sometimes drastically. In goals, they actually went completely to shit. Um, they still get a decent number of shots, and they still do okay in scoring chances. 
but they look a lot less like the 5v5 juggernaut, har har, that we were seeing for the first few months, that we saw under Claude Julien, and even for the first bit of Dom Ducharme's reign. If the Leafs were going up against the Habs of the last month, I would be picking like Leafs in three, because they have looked terrible. But yeah. they're going to get back several of the players that were absent for those. They should Almost all of them, actually. All of them except Jonathan Duran, who's absent for personal reasons. So the anticipation mm-hmm. is they will have Gallagher, Deneau, Weber. Those are maybe the three most important players on the Habs, um, goaltending aside. So that goes a long way for them. And so I do anticipate this will be harder than you might think it would be if you're just looking at what have the Habs been doing lately. Because, look, they have stank. They have been terrible. Yeah, they've been... We, we talked about this before. Mm-hmm. The Habs, um, in some sense, even at their best, they're a really strong 5-on-5 team, and they're not that great elsewhere, so they kind of need that strong 5-on-5 ability because they're not a team like Washington with an elite power play. Mm-hmm. They're not a team that currently has elite goaltenders like Winnipeg does. They're not a team that has snipers, right? They need to control 5-on-5. And when they don't, you know, that, that's the basis for what they, what they do. And when they don't do that, everything kind of crumbles. Um, now, these last six weeks, they've gotten, you know, quite a bit worse at carrying play 5-on-5. Five five, and, of course, injuries factor into that. Um, but the other thing is, and this is perhaps, you know, this can be read in many ways, but their, their goaltending and shooting also crumbled. Mm-hmm. And... You know, very, very few teams are good enough to survive either one of those things going to shit at a time. I think almost none are capable of doing both. Yes. I mean, those are the two components of PDO, obviously. And PDO is still kind of a neat shorthand for how are things going for you. And it can be subject to variance in small samples. Now, the Habs are always struggling with their shooting percentage. They've done it long enough that it, I think it's a fixed part of their identity. And at right. times they've had great goaltending, at times they've not. Yeah, and, and at, at the start of this year they had really, really hot shooting, and that, I believe, has since come down to earth. I'm not sure where they where they rank in terms of XG outperformance on the whole this year, but, um, you know, the, these, last, these last six weeks where they're shooting badly, it's also not something where you can say, okay, throw that away, mm-hmm. right? It's still, it's still data. It still informs how well we think they are going to finish over expectation going forward and of course in a seven game series um you know things can deviate very wildly from the expectation but it still informs like the mean that we would expect to see right and i think you know a lot of people still harken back to the habs were 24th in the nhl last year and they only made the qualifying round because of a very generous format and a big reason that they were in 24th despite good 5v5 numbers is their shooting percentage was in the toilet this year, by the way, they finished just in general shooting percentage 20th in the league, which is actually not that bad for them, but it is down from the heights that it was early in the season um, when they looked like, again, a juggernaut in the words of Chris Johnson that have since become ironically immortal. So, yeah, in breaking down what the Habs bring to the table, the big question to start with is, okay... How good are they going to be at controlling 5v5 with very solid defensive play, with good enough shooting percentage, even if it's a bit weak? If they have that at the level that they've shown they can, 
they're still a dangerous team. They're a real opponent. If they don't have right. that, they're in big trouble. Yeah, that's a prerequisite for them to compete in this series. Like, mm-hmm. for the Leafs, I mean, this is inadvisable. I wouldn't want to see this happen because it reduces the margin for error. But you can see a world where the Leafs get um, yeah, the, the worst of the run of play at 5-on-5 five five in terms of creating shots and creating chances against the Habs, but win the series anyways. Yeah. Short of a gargantuan goal de- goaltending differential, it's harder to see the Habs do the same thing. Yeah. Because the Habs are, tend to be worse at... Um, special teams, which is saying a lot given how bad the Leafs power play has, has you know, tumbled. Uh, and they're also worse at the those kind of other weird score states, which matter less than the playoffs, like four on four. Um, but it, you know, might still impact things on the margin. That the Habs kind of need to outperform or need to outshoot the, the Leafs at five on five to uh, have a good chance of winning this series. Whereas the Leafs, you know, can survive possibly with some hot shooting, a bit of power play luck, a bit of you know, odd situation luck. Yeah. Um, it, it's, a, it's at least more conceivable for it to go that way than it would be for the reverse um, with the Habs get benefiting from that. Exactly. And it's worth noting, the Leafs have actually killed it 5v5 for a while now. Like, they finished right. the year third in goals four percentage at 5-on-5. Five five. You know, like, they're doing to other teams 5v5 what we were so fearful about the Habs doing earlier in the year. While as the Habs have fallen off pretty hard so all things being equal you can really look at this series and say the Leafs arguably have an advantage at virtually everything or at least are saw off even so yeah I I I know that we're hammering this point and then you know we're going to talk more about the Habs but I do want to emphasize that while we're going to look at them in some detail we do respect them as an opponent I don't think this is going to be a joke series But the Leafs should be favored here, and the Leafs should win. And it should be by a larger margin, all else being equal, than certainly either of the Boston series. Boston, you know, was a much more fearsome opponent. This is a clear situation where Toronto's the favorite. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's not just us saying that. The the mathematical models seem to agree. Um, I don't remember exactly what they have, what the various models have us at. I'm pretty sure Dom Nishishin had us at, he hasn't released his um, his full preview yet, which is you know always something to look forward to because he does a great job with those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he tweeted about it that the Leafs are 79% favored to win if Jake Allen starts 83% if Carey Price wins. And we'll get into you know that goaltending <laughs> question. Um, Money Puck has us as at, I think, 75% to win the series. And Michael McCurdy, Hockey Viz, as us, I think, in the 60s. Yeah. If we actually are like a 75-80% favorite in a sport as random and crazy as hockey, that is a big, big margin. That's it's heavy quite favorite. overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think most people are agreed that the Leafs are better. But, hockey is played on the ice. Ultimately, they have to go out and do it. So, what are they up against when they try to do that? We're going to try and break down the Habs lineup, line by line, pairing by pairing. So you will know who you're likely to see. The lines are based on the practice that the Habs had Saturday morning. Uh, thank you to Arpon Basu, who is a uh, Habs beat reporter for tweeting these. I relied on them. They are subject to change. The first game of the series isn't until Thursday. So Dom Ducharme could try all sorts of things in practice and come to a different result. But at least you'll get to know the players and kind of what 
you're facing from the perspective of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Ready to go? I'm ready. All right. So the top line on the Habs is usually, and probably will be again, Thomas Tatar, Philip Deneau, and Brendan Gallagher. I think this is the best thing they have going for them. Not their defense or their goaltending, frankly, despite reputations. Their defense is good, but I don't think it's that great. And Carey Price was once the best goalie in the world, but hasn't been in a while. This first line actually scares me a little bit. And if the Habs are going to pull off the upset, I think this line is going to be the prime driver of it, probably. So, yes, it, yeah, it's, it's a line that's built in a lab to look unimpressive on paper and be very impressive on the ice. Yes. You know, we kept talking about, okay, the Habs, they, they win fancy stats usually, but they also win goals. This line is a huge driver of that. They consistently own the puck. They consistently get the better of expected goals and chances, and they just win their minutes because they're very well-suited. Even though you look at them and you think, who on there is really a first-line player? And I think that they all actually are, but none of them have the name wreck, and they don't tend to have the whopping point totals that you maybe expect. So let's break down who's here. Thomas Tatar is kind of the playmaker and maybe the most conventionally skilled forward of the three of them. Like, if you were going to get a highlight reel fancy Dan play, Thomas Tatar, I think, is the most likely of the three to provide it. Uh, He sometimes seems to annoy his coaches because he gets scratched occasionally. Dom Ducharme actually healthy scratched him this year at one point, which was kind of staggering given that he's first line left wing and a veteran. He probably fits the Montreal Canadian stereotype a little bit less than some other players because he is, again, more skillful, more of a, a creative passer. Um, but he works well with the other two because he adds elements that maybe they don't have. And he helps put some offensive punch into the line, some ability to make the higher level play, which they otherwise might not have to the same extent. He's one of the few Habs who has a long track record as an above-average shooter as well. Mm. And that's important for a team that consistently struggles struggles with shooting percentage. Um, one of the big issues that the Habs always face is who's going to score the goals. And we'll talk about who is supposedly going to do that. But Thomas Tatar is one of the guys. And he's certainly capable of setting up the goals for the other people. So he certainly, I expect, will show up on the assist sheet. Uh, centering the group is Philip Deneau. We talked about Deneau actually when we did our awards because he's a contender for the Selkie. He won't win it, so I guess he's a contender mostly in the minds of nerds. But I think he actually belongs in that conversation. He's one of those players that coaches generally love. He stays above players. He checks them hard. He applies constant pressure. He makes it miserable to play if you're an offensive player. Um, if you find yourself wondering, hey, why has our, our high-priced talent not done very much? For several minutes or shifts or periods, Philip Deneau might well be involved. He is very irritating to play against. His offense kind of comes and goes. He's not much of a power play guy. And so the result is he doesn't put up totals. But sometimes on at uh, 5v5, he's put up decent ones. Better ones than you might expect, given that Philip Deneau sounds like kind of a third line guy in a lot of imaginations. But he's a very good player. 
he's exactly the type of player who gets underrated because defense isn't properly valued. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah. He he you know every every line he plays on every time he gets on the ice less happens for the opposing team and that's um you know that's nothing to be scoffed at yeah and it's worth emphasizing look the Habs don't have offensive talent to compare to Matthews Marner or Tavares Newlander they just don't and so if they're going to win they need someone who is going to put the brakes on the opposing best forwards Philip Deneau is the guy to do it and so insofar as they have a real plan here he's got to be a big part of it and Brendan Callagher is the heart and soul of the Habs. He's a decent chunk of the offense also. We've talked about him before, that he is genuinely a star offensive player in his way. He doesn't do it with dazzling skill. He doesn't do it in a way that shows up on highlight reels as an impressive act of preternatural vision or something like that. He goes to the front of the net and he gets the shit kicked out of him, frankly. And he stays in the action long enough to put the puck in the net. And the result is that he scores 30 goals or at a 30-goal pace most years recently. Like, he is a genuine top-level goal scorer, and he does it by setting up shop in the crease and taking as much punishment as is needed to get a stick on the puck. I do really think if you want to look at intangibles and stuff like that, he is their guy. He's talked about as their next captain, they all seem to to love him. And while there were obviously other crowding factors, it does feel a bit telling that the team tanked hard when he got hurt. They missed right. him badly. Yeah, and, they absolutely yeah. do. And, I mean, the, the, even the, the way this line works is they all have kind of a, a different role on it. It all kind of connects and makes sense in a cohesive way. Mm-hmm. And even when it works, it's not really pretty to watch either, right? Especially offensively. Offensively, you know, even with a guy like Tatar, who has, you know, no shortage of skill, their system is really meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. It's forecheck, puck to the point, puck to the net, rebound, capitalize on scramble. Yeah. Right. Occasionally, you'll get uh, Tatar, usually, making a high-end skill play to create an advantage out of a situation where one previously didn't exist, but... You know, you look at the heat maps with this trio on the ice. It's a big blob in front of the points, or a big blob in front of the net, rather, and a big blob from the points, which I believe from watching them precipitates those that big blob in front of the net. It's really, you know, point shot and rebound dependent. Exactly. And Gallagher is the guy. Gallagher is the rebound king. And, you know, he's also screening the goalie, so he's helping the point shots go in when they do so. And... You really, I do think, get a line here that's more than the sum of its parts. As you've said, they like they are just a really good combination of skills to play the Hab system. And as a result, they keep getting put back together. It's maybe also a little significant that the more offensively skilled center in the Habs lineup, who I think is already Nick Suzuki and has been for a while, doesn't play with Brennan Gallagher, who is probably their best winger. That's a little arguable, but I think it's true. Because this line of Tatar, Deneau, Gallagher has been so good at what it does for so long, and it works so predictably, that it's just sort of the safety net for any coach to rely on. And as well it should be. 
If I'm Dom Ducharme, I'm thinking I want to throw this line at Austin Matthews every single chance I get. Now, one, Sheldon Keefe might have something to say about that, but two, I do want to emphasize when we talk about line matching, it's really hard to get 100% of the minutes um, from one line up against another, right? Like, you just do not have that much control over the game. And you can, you know, do your best, especially when you have home ice. But there are going to be gaps. There are going to be different competitions. And I don't want to talk like this is set in stone. I'm just saying that from the Habs' perspective, a pretty obvious tactical step is put Deneau out against Matthews when you get the chance. Right. Now, one thing I think it's worth mentioning um, that might also impede their ability to do that is this first line is not a Boston first line or an Edmonton first line where in an import, where you know the team will rely on them, will play them 25 minutes at even strength. Mm-hmm. Montreal spreads their time on ice out. They have a very flat time on ice distribution. Maybe that changes a bit in the playoffs. I don't know, but I wouldn't expect it to, not dramatically. Um, you know, th- this line does not usually sustain their play for 20, 22, 23 minutes the way Matthews' line does. Yes. So, you know, it's going to have to be by committee for the Habs to to take to to do that unless they want to really change up their time on ice structure. Mm-hmm. And I think if they get top heavier, that may rebound to the benefit of the Leafs a little bit. Supposedly, the strength of the Habs is forward depth as much as anything, and you can debate whether that's true actually as we go through this lineup. But I do find myself thinking, okay. They're going to want to get these minutes for Deneau because their centers after Deneau are either impressive but inexperienced in the case of Suzuki or unimpressive and inexperienced in the case of Kotkaniemi uh, or sort of depth guys like Jake Evans and what remains of Eric Stahl. This is definitely a big card that Ducharme has to play, but I'm not sure that it's enough. If you're wondering, hey, did this happen during the regular season? Matthew's up against a no. I think it's almost what you would naively expect. They played 23 minutes against each other total at 5-on-5. Deneau got the better of the shots, and Matthews outscored him. I would not be at all surprised if the same sort of thing happens in this series. Um, the Habs, as a, as a group, tend to do better at shots than anything else. And Austin Matthews is probably the best goal scorer on the planet. So there's a natural road there to it going Corsi one way, goals the other way. And obviously you'd rather have the goals when it comes down to it. Um, If the Habs can play about even, Deneau against Matthews, and I wouldn't bet on it, but it's not another question, that's a huge thing for them. They really, really would like that to happen, however they can do it. Um, And... A lot of their chances in this series, I think, depend on they have to slow Matthews down to some extent. Obviously, the rate that he's been scoring in the regular season, if he keeps producing at that rate, he's like there's just not going to be a ton that they can do to make up for it unless everyone else on the, in the roster just flops. Um, yeah, so I hope we've given sort of a balanced perspective there. I feel like my dream second line if I were a lot of other teams, would be this line. They would be so good to have to control play, to throw up in hard match situations. Um, 
you know, to add grit and intangibles and stick-to-itiveness and everything else. The, the fact that they need to rely on them to the extent that they do might be a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. So the second line, this is again as a practice, and I'm a little less certain that this one is going to hold. Right. Well, one of the kind of corollaries to Montreal being a, a team with a flat time and ice distribution and a flat um, kind of player talent distribution is that their lines can get scrambled a lot, right? I mean, the Leafs scramble their lines too. Sheldon Keefe loves to tinker. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know you're getting Matthews Marner on the first line, Tavares Nylander on the second. Right. Right, and the, everything that changes around them is window dressing. Mm-hmm. Not so with the Habs. Right, and so you could probably put any combination of the middle six together, and I would be like, yeah, they might do that. But this is based on practice. Um, Tyler Toffoli, Nick Suzuki, and Joel Armia are what we're looking at for the second line right now. Toffoli and Suzuki are probably going to be together, I would think. They've played a lot. Josh Anderson is actually Suzuki's most frequent wing partner over the year, but right now he's on the third line, I guess because the Habs want to balance their scoring. You can sort of see why they might want to do that. Looking at the Leafs roster, you might be thinking, maybe we'll get some some time against a weaker third line, and that'll be where we put up some margins. I don't know. Uh, but this second line is worth a look. Say what you will about Mark Bergevin signing Tyler Toffoli. Great move. Like, that was very well done on his part. And I think, you know, people said at the time that was a smart move. It was facilitated by him having cap space and the Vancouver Canucks capping themselves out to build a garbage team. But Tyler Toffoli is an actual sniper. On a team that doesn't really have any of those in the conventional sense. Especially with Cole Caulfield not currently playing. Uh, he shoots a lot and he scores at a precent, pretty, sorry, a pretty decent rate. This year he's shooting the lights out in a way that I don't think he'll do forever. But he's a good goal-scoring offensive player. And they really need that. He works well with Suzuki, who we'll get to in a second. Um, and I think that to fully add something to their power play to get it to sort of mediocrity, which is where it currently resides. Mm-hmm. Um, normally I would laugh at them for just getting to mediocrity, but the Leafs power play recently has not been any better. So... <laughs> mediocre sounds like a, a paradise. Yeah, we actually have some work to do to get back to mediocre. So, yeah, he's he's a good goal scorer. And if he's the top Habs goal scorer in the series, that wouldn't be a huge shock to me, him or Gallagher. Um, he's also been a consistently good defensive winger too. So really he brings a lot to their team and he certainly makes them better. As a general rule, actually, if you want to talk about why are the Habs better this year than last, I think Toffoli is a huge part of it. I actually am impressed with him as a very good second line player. Um, Nick Suzuki is the great hope of the Habs. They think that he's going to be their first-line center of the future. Untouchable in a Jack Eichel deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, why would you want to give up uh, a pretty good prospect for star center Jack Eichel? I do think Nick Suzuki is cool, though. Nick Nick Suzuki's put me in this position that I don't like, Mm -hmm. where I I keep having to, to, like, basically think or say, like, okay, like, chill out about a player who I actually think is very good. Yeah. Because Nick Suzuki is very good. He's a very good player. He's going to be a very good player for a long time. 
He's a 60-point player, more or less, right now, with solid play-driving impacts. He's, like, 21. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a hell of a player. That's really useful. That's, you know, something to get excited over. He is not going to, I don't think, ever finish top 10 in a league scoring race. I don't think he's ever going to seriously contend for a major award. But he yeah. is a very good player who can be an important part of a good team. Right. And, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't really blame Habsans for this. It's just what fan bases do. But, you know, I think Habsans overrate his... Um, his impact and what he is possibly going to be. They're far from the only fan base to do that. So, you know, yeah. I'm not really throwing stones there. It's just, I, I think I, he's, actually, he's you know a what? good... I, I want to throw stones there. Actually, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being a bit unfair. But like, every fan base does it, but I swear to God, and maybe it's just Twitter or the fact that we're adjacent to them in the same division every year, but I feel like the Habs fan base really gets up on a lot of their prospects. And then when disappointment sends in, they turn on them pretty hard. Like I'm thinking of like even Victor Mete, who, you know, seemingly was treated as like, how many Norrises will he win? And then, you know, he ended up being claimed on waivers by the Ottawa Senators this year. And it just, it does feel like it swings pretty hard in Montreal. But yeah, there is an element of that in every single fan base, certainly beliefs too. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, your assessment of Nick Suzuki is right. He's going to be very good. I don't know that he's going to be a superstar. And I do think the Leafs actually play some role in that the Habs fan base thinking on this almost. Like, you know, we're standards of comparison for each other. And the truth is is that there's not much evidence he's ever going to be in a class with Matthews just because there aren't that many players who are. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. He can still be really good and still be part of a, an excellent contending team. Um, he's very shifty and yeah, deceptive th- is the, the words that people use to describe his, his sort of smart playmaking. Doesn't have outstanding speed at the NHL mm-hmm. level, um, but good good puck skills. Uh, he said, kind of a, a smart player, knows how to manipulate his speed to his advantage. He, he won't straight out, you know, out race people, but mm-hmm. good at changing directions, good at using momentum uh, and defenders' momentum against them, putting them off balance, kind of does a lot of the same things that someone like John Tavares does to mitigate his lack of high-end foot speed. Right. And he's certainly among the most impressive, maybe the most impressive halves in terms of skill, to my eye test anyway. Like, every now and then you will see him make a play where he clearly recognized an opening and took advantage of it before other players saw it was there, before the defense saw a chance to stop it. I actually think that he is, like, really creative and good, and it's something that this roster really needs because there are a lot of uh, meat and potatoes is a good phrase for it, uh, as you said. Lots of good, tough, grindery kind of guys, but maybe fewer of the real creators. I think Suzuki can be a a real genuine creator, and Mm -hmm. putting him with Toffoli, who is a, a bona fide goal scorer, is a really nice combination for them. It makes a lot of sense. Um, it does. Yeah. And you know, if they have a hot series, they can put the puck in the net and they can be dangerous and maybe put up a margin. Yeah. And despite being, you know, quite young, Suzuki was well trusted by both Julien and Ducharme. Yes. You know, this is partially due to injury, but Suzuki, you know, was the most played half in the last six weeks. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe that's not a huge point in his favor, uh, given how badly they played. 
but mm. he he's trusted. He he's not particularly sheltered. They're they're not using him like Ryan O'Reilly or anything. But if if there's there's going to be shifts where Suzuki's going to be, have to be in the defensive zone against Matthews or Tavares, and I don't think Montreal's tearing their hair out at those situations. Yeah, it's not their first choice, but it's something that they can certainly live with, and they are grooming Suzuki to be the first line center of the future. Uh, there have been rumors that Philip Deneau turned down an extension, partly because he recognizes that the Habs intend for Suzuki to be the guy, and Deneau perhaps does not feel that he's always been respected for, for his contributions, which I can understand where he's coming from on that. But Suzuki is legitimate. Like, he's, he's a, a real guy. And so when we compare him to John Tavares now, and we say, gee, but he's not as good as John Tavares. No, he's not. But it is impressive to do what he does at the age that he is. Right. And this is one thing to, to keep in mind, because I, I look at this, you know, I'm, we have a Google Doc that has the lines here. And I'm looking at the lines like, oh, yeah, there's good, there's good players here. There's good players here. Yeah, I mean, the Habs aren't Buffalo, where you're just looking at it and it's like, oh, wow, there's just a lack of talent on this roster. The Habs are a relatively talented roster. Yeah. Right. But it's also worth remembering, like, we have John Tavares on our second line. Yeah. We have William Nylander on our second line. I mean, it's, you know, we talked all this, said all these very nice things about Nick Suzuki. I'm not sure Nick Suzuki is ever as good as William Nylander. He's our fourth best forward. Yeah. I think that that's certainly an open question. And I do think that the Habs are the kings of having a roster of guys where you're like, hey, you know, he's actually pretty good. I could say that like 15 times looking at their roster. Hey, he's actually pretty good. Suzuki is actually pretty good and young enough to get better, which is not true of all the other players. But, hey, he's actually pretty good all up and down the roster is going up against a team that has players who are legitimately great. And I know that this sounds like, you know, Toronto masturbation. But we do have a team here now that is a legit top five-ish team in the league built on elite forward talent. The Habs don't have that. And so... As much as I respect them and what they can do, there's a gap there. And that's something that the Habs have to live with um, or, and to overcome if they're going to win the series. Um, also, there's a third guy on the line. And I feel like we have correctly hinted at his relative importance by talking about the other guys for a long time before mentioning him very much at all. But Joel Armia always seems like he ought to be more than he is. He's been talked up for a while now because, you know, he's 6'3". He was a first-round pick. He has some goal-scoring instincts. And he's kind of settled in as, like, a good third-liner who scores 15 goals a year. Which is not bad. 15 goals a year is pretty okay. You know, you'll certainly take that as for, like, a third-line winger. But given that he has size and goal-scoring instincts, there's a definite sense of, is that all there is with Joel Armia? And I do feel like he's one of the guys where if the Habs had more skill pushing down from the top of this roster, you know, Joel Armia is a great, like, sneaky threat where it's like, oh, wow, they still have him in reserve deep in the roster, ready to pop out and surprise and score a goal. Him as a second line winger, you're like, oh, well, he's no William Nylander, <laughs> for example. He's one of a long string of secondary scorers on a team that has a lot of secondary scorers and not enough primary ones. Mm -hmm. um, you put this line together, is that it, like it's a neat group. They could do well. 
if this goes up against Tavares or Matthews, they should eat them. If this right. goes up and against a defensive line, the defensive line should be hoping to stifle them. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth noting that Tavares and Dean Edward haven't like destroyed the Habs this year. No. Right. Um, in fact, I think they have. They're slightly underwater in Corsi against them, and slightly above uh, in goals. Right. It's like it's like eighty-three to eighty-seven in Corsi mm-hmm. in the Habs' favor, and then five to four and five v five goals in Tavares' favor. Right. Um, so that's not overwhelming. We'd like to see more than that. Now, there's there's a couple kind of mitigating things there. Um, Tavares and Ian didn't have a great start to the year, right? And we, we, we did face the Habs, under Julian especially, a couple times at the start that th- they had some, some kind of meh games uh, there, right? So that, yeah. that's one thing to consider. Um, another thing to consider is that we haven't seen the uh, Tavares line with Felino against the Habs at all. I mean, well, against anyone, actually. But... Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of an open question as to how that's going to impact things as well. But yes, the, the hope should certainly be that this Tavares line, if they perform as well as they did on average through this year, we are mm-hmm. in a good spot, right? The, this line was very, very good throughout the year. If they can play against Montreal the way they played against everyone else, we'll, we're, that, that'll go a long way. Yeah, Absolutely. There is an argument that if Sheldon Keefe wants to make a very defensive line, and I don't know if Ilya Mikheyev, Raleigh Nash, and Alex Kerfoot are supposed to be this, but they seem like they have a defensive orientation, to say the least. There's an argument that you throw them at Suzuki and Toffoli. That that's maybe the most dangerous offensive pairing. Um, and then you just let Matthews stand up against Philip Deneau and, and live with the results there. Sheldon Keefe has a lot of options. With this lineup, but I, I do think Suzuki jumps out at me as one of the guys with a lot of skill. So, if you're going to address something with your line matching, uh, he seems to me like he should be sort of a priority. But that's just uh, yeah. my perspective on it. And actually, I'm going to take um, this time yep. to, to, mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about... Um, you know, there's there's a lot riding on this for for William Nylander, and I think for Mitch Marner. Marner hasn't gotten the same criticism that Nylander has for his his poor playoffs, but like he was awful against Columbus. They were both really bad against Columbus. Yes. Um, it, it, and even the year before against Boston, I don't think Marner was amazing. He had one really good series against Boston. I think it was was the first one, not the second one. Um, so you know, we we talked off the top about like one of the ways, really one of the only ways. You can look at the series and think the Habs are favored. Is if you think, you know, as Fuldman said, Toronto does not show up in the playoffs and it's something that's inherent to them. And what that really is saying, because we've seen enough of Matthews, we've seen enough of Tavares, you know, they actually do show up in the playoffs. They've had big moments, you know, uh, both in the NHL and on international stages. Mm-hmm. What you're really saying is that Mitch Marner and William Neander don't show up in the playoffs. Right. right? And they've both had underwhelming playoff seasons playoff campaigns they both had very strong playoff campaigns i remember you know the the rookie year 2016-17 nylander and matthews torched uh evgeny kuznetsov so much that barry trotz had to change his entire matchup strategy Mm -hmm. right they were they were going to town on him so you know this is this is really important for for nylander and for Mm martin that they show up that they play well and that 
you know, ultimately this is a little bit unfair, but we need them to contribute goals, right? We're paying them because they have some talent to create goals, not just create shots, create chances, but create goals. Yeah, absolutely. And against a team like the Habs, you know, we're, the, the Habs are much closer in 5v5 kind of play-driving level to the Leafs than they are in finishing level and high-end skill level. Right, and we that's where that we should be putting up. up margins. We should be showing yes. that we're a more skilled team. And, you know, and a higher-paid yeah. one on it <laughs> in terms of the, the star players. But Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and yeah. Sorry, oh, just to, to finish mm-hmm. off. You know, with, with Nylander and Marner, there's been, there's been extenuating circumstances over the years. Nylander seems to go every year without playing center and then has to play it in a do-or-die game randomly. <laughs> uh, which is which is weird, and I I hope to God that doesn't happen this year. Oh Jesus right? Christ! Um, yeah, please. You know, we always have these kind of weird machinations to that that end up <laughs> through injury, suspension, or or just you know, I guess desperation that results in Ender having to do that. Um, and you know that will almost certainly not be the case this year. But now he needs to you know he needs to show up. He needs to show up, and and the same is true of Marner, right? Marner's getting paid eleven million dollars. He's third in the league or whatever in scoring mm-hmm. right he needs he needs to show up he needs to get to the front of the net or ha- have his line get to the front of the net right because yeah. at, at, at his worst and this didn't happen very often this year because he had a really wonderful year but at his worst um marner can be a perimeter player actually much more so than Nylander. and if the passes he's making from the outside aren't connecting it's a it can be a big problem that that's the big thing that has to be uh, avoided and as, as for Nylander yeah he has to do what he does normally right he has to get his shots actually through not take a million shots from from the outside which he doesn't do often but against Columbus last year the entire team did right and you know the Habs are going to try to win this through defense they're going to say we're going to slow them down we're going to play our game work as a five-man unit be gritty and tough and if yeah. the Habs pull off the upset everyone is going to be hearing about how Brendan Gallagher and Corey Perry and Josh Anderson and all of these guys have it in the sense of playoff grit or whatever intangibles you want. But they're going to say, those guys have it, and Nylander and Marner don't. And that's going to be a little unfair, but if Marner and Nylander don't show much this series, that is a legit criticism of them. Right, because at a certain point, it, this, this is an unfair part of hockey. It's an unfair part of sports, but at a certain point, you know, you, you don't you don't get a, an infinite game sample to show your worth when it matters. Yeah, you know, sorry, like this this is it, and they've had chances year in year out. You know, some of them have gone better than others. This is the most that I think the Leafs should have been favored in any series that they've had. You can debate the Columbus series, but Columbus I think was well suited to cause us trouble, not to the point where we should have lost, but where you could sort of see it how. Right. And this the Leafs were also like, not as yeah. good last year, right? Like, it's no, worth mentioning. No, no, that's also true. Um, and it was a scattered year, if you want to put anything on Sheldon Keefe coming in halfway or the weird timing. You can sort of explain that away. There's not really an excuse here. you got to beat up the Habs. Um, are we ready to move to line three? Yeah, sorry, that was like a, 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 a sidebar. No, uh, it was good, though. I think that that's, that's true and important, and we're going to hear more about it. So, The third line on the Habs is Corey Perry, remember him? Currently, Eric Stahl at center, and Josh Anderson on the right wing. I put also Stahl slash Jisbury Kotkaniemi, 
because I think that's an open question. We'll talk about it. There's a lot of uncertainty with these lines, and I think that the third line is maybe the least certain. That seems the most likely to have some sort of big change made. Uh, we'll start with Corey Perry, who I think is going to be there. He is an aging trash can. He was once one of the premier goal scorers on the planet. You young kids may not remember this, but between 2007 and 2016, there was one person, not named Ovechkin or Samkos, who won the Rocket Richard, and it was Corey Perry. He's always been a shitbag. He is an yeah. irritating rat of a man. Uh, I don't like him. No, and we're going to hate him even more after this series. I, I guarantee he's going to do something greasy. Oh, yeah, he's going to... Oh, there's going to be some bullshit. We're going to talk about it for two days after, and I'm going to hate it. Anyway, however, he is also wily and creative. And I think this is something that we've seen a lot, most prominently with Jason Spezza, where his physical gifts are not quite what they once were. But he's so smart, you can just tell that he still has the, the offensive instincts of a star player. Corey Perry still has a bit of those. And every now and then there will be an opportunity that comes that he jumps on and takes advantage of. And then the puck is in the back of your net and you're frustrated. He, uh, he got the puck off Rasmus Sandin and set up Cole Caulfield for a goal against us a couple weeks back. And that was the sort of thing. And it was a bad play by Sandin, to be clear. But also Perry saw the opening and he jumped on it. And so you can see why he's in the lineup. He does bring that element, even if he's much declined from his peak. Thank God. Uh, the center question. Okay, Eric Stahl has been bad this year. Especially with the Haps. Yeah. He, and, and he was in Buffalo before, where nothing was going well. And I got to tell you, I thought that Stahl was going to sort of have a new lease on life with Montreal, and obviously a lot of other things have happened. The team suffered a lot of injuries, so they were struggling in general. But he hasn't really looked rejuvenated to the extent that I anticipated he would. He looks close to being washed, and again, that's good for us, because he was once one of the most fearsome goal scorers in the NHL. He was a Always very, very good player. really fuck the Leafs, too. Yeah! I mean, yeah. granted, we were bad when he was we in prime, we so everyone did, but... Absolutely terrible. But, uh, yeah... He's good, and, or, sorry, he was very good. If he's what he's shown this year and nothing more, then this third line, I think, is a real weakness. Mm -hmm. You know, he just, he, like, he hasn't played, like, a full-time NHL forward, to be honest with you. So, the least should be taking advantage. Just very Kotkaniemi is maybe more interesting. He's certainly a constant topic of debate in the Montreal media, which, again, I firmly believe is one of the few hockey environments that is on a level with Toronto and how insane it is. It, it, I think it's even more insane because you have like, like kind of the, the cultural yes. uh, kind yeah. of clash and cultural cachet that the Habs have and, you know, their importance to kind of Quebecois culture. Yeah. Which, and which many feel is, is slowly eroding. Yeah, there was a game uh, a couple weeks back where due to absences and injuries... Uh, the Habs were playing no Quebecois players for the first time in their history. And it was a subject of much discussion. They actually did end up uh, calling up a guy who, I don't know if his main oh. criteria was that he is Quebecois, but this this one random Hab. Did like, Belzio get in? Industry. Oh, I thought they were going to scratch him. I didn't see the actual roster. Yeah. But, okay, well, then they've avoided it for another year. But 
You can see the way the wind is blowing, and there are fewer Quebec players than there once were, as the game has broadened in the base of places that it draws from. Anyway, uh, it leads to a lot of debate, but putting that aside, Jesperi Kotkaniemi has been the subject of a lot of that debate. He went very high, went third overall. Uh, he we broke... both liked him in his draft year, too. We did. I had no problem. Although we liked him at, like, we liked him yeah. in, like, late lottery. Right, like we were like, oh, if he fell to us, that'd be amazing. It looked at one point partway through the year like he was gonna go mid-teens, mm-hmm. and then his stock rose and rose, and it, it was a draft that was famously not that deep in centers, and he wound up third overall. But like, I didn't hate the pick at the time, mm. um, and he broke into the league at age eighteen, so right after being drafted, he looked pretty good in sheltered minutes. Granted, uh. He is like the poster boy for don't give the Selkie to some sheltered third-line kid who has great defensive impacts. I'm sorry, but like I really feel like a lot of the stat people that I admire got to kind of take a bath on this one because he had great results for exactly one year in very controlled minutes against soft competition, and then the next year he went to shit again. Um, which is the next part of the story. He struggled mightily the next year. But it already feels like there's a lot of history with Kotkaniemi, and yet he's only 20 years old. Like, he's still a young, capable player, but he's really struggled. His production this year has been passable-ish for a bottom six center. Like, his point rate is slightly behind Pierre Engvall. So, take from that what you will. But they were really hoping for him to be a top six guy. He might still. There's time, but well, yeah, I mean, you, you pick a guy third. You're hoping he makes. You're hoping he contends for major awards. Frankly, yeah, yeah. Like you do not want to miss on a top three pick, and I'm not saying that they have missed, but I'm saying that he's not where they wanted him to be by now. The chatter on him right now is that he lacks confidence and looks confused. Uh, the that's... looks confused thing. That's. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a kind of a. It's a weird thing to say. That's why in, it stood in, out in to set. me so much. Uh, imagine if someone said about you and your job, man, Fulman, he's not working those spreadsheets with confidence. He just looks confused. Clippy's asking him what to do. <laughs> hey, man. Doesn't have a good answer help. for Clippy. <laughs> and that has happened, but I try not to look like it. But uh, yeah, he is, he is struggling. And that's why we're even having a conversation where he might not even be in the game one lineup. Yeah, his, his time has, has has fallen throughout the year. Uh, it, it seems he's lost a bit of trust under under Dom Ducharme. Uh, Perry, for example, has, has done the opposite. So it's interesting that they're kind of for now placed in a similar spot to the lineup. But it seems like if there's going to be a change, it's more likely we see Perry move up and Kotkaniemi move down. Yes. And that that's crazy for, the, for how that's developed. Because again, he was part of their hope for centers of the future. They, they were thinking Suzuki Kotkaniemi won two going into the longer term. And Suzuki is, as we've said, pretty much holding up his end of the bargain. Kotkaniemi is struggling to do so. And I'm not saying that they're necessarily going to run him out of town or anything, but one of the signposts on the road to running him out of town is lacks confidence and is not starting in the playoffs. That's not a great sign for them. Um, His on-ice numbers are still okay, but I have to tell you, like everyone on the Habs has good on-ice numbers pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his isolates show him as an offensive drag, 
which is kind of not what you want, again, for a guy who you have hopes for in the long term of being a top six center. He should be doing something offensively. Um, again, he's not old, so I'm not writing him off. I'm saying the market seems closer to writing him off than I, than I think they should be, but at any rate, if he does get into games, by the way, and, and this is a little mean, the Leafs should bully Kotkaniemi and take his lunch money. I'm sorry, he hasn't been playing at a high level this year. And it's not like Suzuki where it's like, oh, he's good. He's no John Tavares, but he's, he's been playing well. Kotkaniemi, again, you may recall that I said several minutes ago, his point production is slightly behind Pierre Engvall. Not great, Bob. Anyway, that's sort of what they're looking at there. If it goes back to Eric Stahl, let's just hope he continues to look washed. Um, the third guy is Josh Anderson. It was an interesting player. He got signed to a fat contract that uh, could age interestingly, but he's had a good year. He's a great power forward, and he's really, really hard to contain on the rush. That's what stands out to me about him, is that once he gets going, there will be runaway freight train moments where your defense looks really stupid, trying to stop him, and he just barrels on by them. And goes and puts the puck in the net. And if he does this against the Leafs, uh, 200 hockey men will ejaculate at the same time. They will all be extremely excited because, you know, he'll blow by, you know, Morgan Riley. Morgan Riley. Yeah. <laughs> Why did I even question who else it would be? <laughs> it's obviously going to be Morgan Riley. Um, but yeah, so he's very good at that. He's a good rush player. And we'll talk a bit about the Habs in the rush, actually. We can do that now, yeah, the only thing I wanted to say before we get into that is that he is very tough to stop or slow down when he's rushing, and he's just a powerful player. He doesn't do a lot of other things at the high level you'd expect from a premier scorer. He's kind of average-ish elsewhere, and then like an absolute bull when he has the time and space to make power moves. Yeah, like, when you see a Josh Anderson goal, you will be like, oh my god, that guy's a force of nature. He's unstoppable. And that's a real thing. It's a real skill, and, like, it's legit. But he doesn't pass very much. He's not an above-average shooter. His heat map is not that impressive. Like, if you look at the Brennan Gallagher heat map, it is the goal mouth is the hell mouth. You know, like, it is all red, point blank, because he is going to the dirty areas and fighting for his life and whacking rebounds at the net. Josh Anderson doesn't do that. He rushes in sometimes, but he doesn't live there. And again, his assist totals are always notably low uh, compared to his goal totals, especially this year. So he scares me a lot on the rush, less so all around. But the Habs live on the rush, and... Uh, you, you had some stuff to say about this one, Arvin. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the Habs' hot start this year, a lot of it was predicated on them creating a lot of rush chances and also maybe converting kind of unsustainably well on those. Um, now, the thing is, the Habs, as we've covered, when they get into the offensive zone, it's meat and potatoes. It's not... They're, they're, they're not going to more often than not, make a incredible skill play to leave you breathless and, and, you know, kind of undress your set defense. They'll take, they're more volume than quality. 
And the way that they generate quality is through generating volume. They, they fire enough shots from the point that eventually one is going to, you know, hit a skate, fall to Brendan Gallagher at the net front. He's going to tap it in. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so a huge, huge part of their offense when they're going well is being able to generate good chances off the rush because they struggle to really generate high end chances without that. Right. They're, they're, I mean, and look. When they're at their best, their scoring chance numbers, their expected goals numbers, their coursing numbers—they're all—they're all good. Um, but one, they're not like super, super elite, and they're more based on volume again than uh, than chance quality necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, stopping the rush ends up being, I think, very important for them as a result, or, or, or when you're facing them. Yes. Uh, and in particular, you want to avoid those opportunities where they're able to get clean entries and zone exits because you ended up playing below the puck uh, on, on the forecheck, right? And that's going to happen to some extent regardless. I remember a, a first period game uh, against the Habs where it's, they just seem to generate so many easy rush chances. And it's because the Leafs were perhaps being a little bit overzealous, but also there was like some bad bounces. Like pucks would just bounce um, in a way where a Leaf four checker was out of position, have to get an uncontested zone exit, and now they're three on two. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that discipline is going to be really important because for an offensively challenged team, you don't want to give them the low-hanging fruit. Yes, absolutely. And, and I do think that the Leafs are better suited to do this than maybe they once were. I think they control the puck better, and I think we talked about this, the third-man-high system which they might have moved away from a little bit in, in recent weeks, but that still helps put numbers back so that you're still playing above the puck, so that there are fewer odd man rushes. And you're hopefully depriving them of those opportunities that mm-hmm. several of their players are, are quite good at capitalizing on to Foley and Josh Anderson stand out in that regard. Right, and especially when Morgan Riley's on base, because he's probably the Leafs' worst transition defender. Yes, and I think that, you know, the narrative on Riley always swings back and forth kind of insanely from look how great he is to, oh my God, he's abject and terrible and we hate him. But he is genuinely bad at defending the rush. And he's paired with TJ Brody, who is quite good at it, um, who is a superb stuck-on-puck defender. So they've they've made a functioning pairing that uh, that can operate on a high level there, but these rush chances are going to be a big factor because the Habs can control the puck for long periods and eventually get it in. But I think, as you were saying, that's probably not enough by itself for them to score enough goals to win the series. They, they do want those rush chances. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about this when we get to the defense, but, you know, it's not a defense blessed with puck movers. Yeah, there's one guy that really impresses me in that regard. Right, and so... Several guys who don't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you, again, you you want to you don't want to give them a free pass in dealing with one of their biggest weaknesses. Yes, absolutely. Right? And so like you know one of the Habs' biggest weaknesses, especially recently, is how do we consistently generate great offense? Right. Right. Like they they did a very good job of that at the start of the year. Uh, recently, much less so. And then another one of their big weaknesses is how do we get out of the zone consistently with control. We'll talk about that with the defense, but you don't want to let them off the hook there either. Yeah. I do want to say one other thing. The Habs were really good against enough teams that it matters. The Habs at the very start of the year 
did beat the shit out of Vancouver. And I'm sorry, but Vancouver, from my eye test, was the worst defensive team I've seen in the NHL. I do think that that helped a little bit in the number of rush chances they got. Mm-hmm. But just have to throw that out there. Um, are we ready to move to the fourth line? Yes, and we can probably breeze through it and then yeah. get to the defense. Yeah, the fourth line, obviously not as important, but Dom Ducharme likes them. They seem to play as a unit a lot. They were actually the third line recently because the Habs were riven by injuries. It's Arturi Lekkonen, Jake Evans, and Paul Byron. Lekkonen is a skilled offensive player, maybe more so than your typical fourth-line winger, and he's another guy who can threaten 15 goals. The Canadians seem to breathe them in the lab. He's had concussion issues that have hurt his ceiling a little bit, but he looks pretty good. Um, Jake Evans is one of those guys who was an offensive standard at a lower level. In this case, he was a playmaker in college, but he's a grinder in the NHL because he doesn't quite have enough offense to drag himself to the top of the lineup. He works hard. Coaches always seem to like him. He's a seventh-round pick who made his way to an NHL regular job. That's impressive. And he shouldn't be a glaring weakness. Uh, Paul Byron, you might remember. If you are an aficionado of weird stats, and I don't know how many of those people are out there, but two of them host this podcast, so here we are. Uh, He used to sustain, like, the highest shooting percentage in the NHL, or close to it. The Tyler Bozak way, where it was just... He didn't shoot unless it was a really, really good opening. So he would finish at like 20% in a given year because when he got an op- when he got a shot on goal, it was because he thought he had a great chance. Um, he was sort of the classic zippy little winger all grown up. You might actually remember that once upon a time, the Canadians were infamous for having a ton of little forwards. And that era has mostly gone by the wayside. They've got a lot more big forwards now, but Paul Byron is still a legacy of it. I don't know how long he has left. He's 32 years old, but he's still pretty quick. And that still adds up to a fourth line that is maybe a bit more dangerous offensively than you might think. Like this is not like a pure grind line. Each of the people on it has a bit of offensive flair. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we'll see how much we see of them going up against the... 500-year-old Leafs fourth line. (laughs) But, yeah, there's a name that we haven't mentioned, and you may be wondering where he is. That's Cole Caulfield. Uh, Cole Caulfield is practicing with the scratches right now. So I haven't included them in the lineup because it looks like Dom Ducharme is not doing that at the moment. I think that's good for the Leafs if Caulfield doesn't play. Yeah, I'd much rather the Habs, as Lee said, I'd much rather have the Habs sit Caulfield and play him. I think his shot is good enough to justify his inclusion in the lineup. Now, for what it's worth, he doesn't have good numbers uh, on the year in terms of on-ice um, stats. He's one of the few Habs who's like below water, I think, in on-ice XG. But that's partially because he you know, played a lot of his minutes in, a, in the drowning boat that was the Habs in the last month. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my opinion, you know, as uh, one thing we've been kind of consistent about through this pod... The Habs are the underdogs. In my opinion, they should be looking at players who have big upside. Caulfield has the possibility to swing a series with a couple big power play goals, with a couple, with with a a shot that just beats a goalie clean from a spot that goalies don't usually get beat clean on. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I I fear Caulfield a lot more than I feel, say, Arturi Lekkonen. Yeah. If you look at this lineup that we've discussed up and down, there aren't that many great goal scorers 
There's Brendan Gallagher, who does it his way, with grit, point blank, and then Toffoli's a good sniper. Josh Anderson's really dangerous on the rush. And there are a lot of, like I said, pretty good guys. Caulfield presents the possibility of big-ticket skill. Now, he also presents the possibility that he's going to get exposed, and that apparently happened in a few of the games down the stretch, uh, and was probably a factor in Ducharme going away from him. I would not be surprised if we see Caulfield at some point in the course of the series, even if he doesn't start game one. And the Leafs certainly want to take advantage, want to pressure him, uh, don't give him time to think or to adjust to the pace of the NHL game, but he is a dangerous shooter on a team that needs them. So This, um, this series has Leafs win game one, you know, three to one, has generate nothing offensively into Caulfield plays the rest of the series, like written all over it. Yeah, it seems... It, it, yeah. It feels like one of those moves where, remember uh, in the 2013 series how uh, we, we started playing Jake Gardner um, like halfway through the series or like, you know, after, after game one or whatever. And same with like Clark MacArthur. Mm. When it's like, when we realize like, oh shit, like we're going to need some, some offensive players. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to need some players who can actually do something. Yeah. It, like there's an argument that Ducharme just isn't quite desperate enough yet. And once he gets a little bit more desperate, he'll be like, oh yeah. Okay. Um, Again, I think that there's an element of, okay, he wants to reward um, his his third, now fourth line for being so good when the team sucked, basically. And then he has a lot of sort of prestige wingers there. Corey Perry has played too well to be removed. Joel Armia, I guess, is just big. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I don't know, man. <laughs> I do think that you make space for Caulfield. Now, I know that this is a very fan oriented take like the Habs fan base has has predicted anointed Cole Caulfield is going to be the the king of the world soon but like he's good he's he's going to be a real NHL goal scorer I think and they should play him uh but as long as they don't good for us so let's move to the defense the much vaunted Habs defense Mm -hmm. top pairing is Ben Chirot and Shea Weber they are big and they are mean yep they are going to play nasty physical hockey and they will push the rules of playoff hockey as far as they can go. That might sound like I'm criticizing them from a moral perspective and I probably will once they do some shit that I hate in the course of the series. But really I'm just saying that's part of their strategy. If the games are called looser in the playoffs, that is a huge benefit to guys like Chirot and Weber who are big physical and can obstruct you in ways that skirt with breaking the rules. If this is called like a stereotypical playoff series where more stuff is let go, that is to the benefit of this pairing and that this pairing gets more dangerous. I expect them to do some shit that is going to make Lee fans furious and that's too bad, but that's playoff hockey to some extent. To be honest, Lee fans, I, I, I am very much over 35 people in my timeline retweeting one of Omar's gifts of, you know, one missed call and being like, oh, guess the refs are, are, you know, I guess the Habs are just a super clean team. Like, we get it. Refs miss calls. Like, stop stop bitching about it, please. Yeah, that's the thing is, like, calls are missed every which way. That's just how it goes. And so yeah. every single team will be able to trot out evidence of missed calls because there's not a 100% success rate. Yeah, there I will be stuff. Despise this. I, I, I hate that so much. It's it's real tiresome. But Chirot and Weber are going to do some shit that I'm going to hate. 
Oh, like, yeah. I just know that. No, for, for, <laughs> sure, for sure they're going to get away with some greasy shit. Um, yeah. Now, the thing is, like, Weber and Sherrod, they're... Weber is, of course, you know, it's Hall of Fame caliber player, one mm-hmm. of the best defensemen in the league in his prime. He's, he's come down from that. Yeah. Um, and to the point where his talents are actually more offensive than defensive. And I'm not sure people realize that. Uh, he is very, very good in the offensive zone because, you know, he's not the most mobile person in the world, but he's smart. He knows how mm-hmm. to pass the puck. He knows how to get shots through. He doesn't just have the booming slapper. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is he's just, a very good shooter for a defenseman, too. One of the few defensemen with genuine shooting talent. Yes. For a while, Shea Weber was in a class of his own on his ability to score as a defenseman on volume. Um, that was at his peak. But, like, he he shot, like, a pretty good forward almost from the point. It's kind of incredible. Um, he still anchors their power play. Even after all this time. He still leads it in shot attempts per 60. So, like, I guess they're just going to do this forever, but th- that's one thing that I've never It's like understood. Batman and the Joker. They're, they're <laughs> destined to do this forever. Shea Weber clapping one-timers on the power play. Okay, but, like, I actually looked this year because their power play has risen again to mediocrity, as we were saying, and I right. was like, they've got some guys now who who should be part of a decent power play unit. Suzuki, Toffoli. Uh, they're not the best but they're guys and that would at least seem like an occasion to be like maybe we don't have to run the whole thing through shea weber but he still leads them in shot attempt right like he's still the first option and at this point it's like okay i i guess that's how it is and the thing is every now and then he'll score a booming slap shot goal or he'll create some chaos and someone will jump on a rebound and everyone will be like see it can work yeah it just doesn't as often as it should but they're going to do it forever, I guess. So, fine. Um, ben Sherrod and Shea Weber, as they actually have been this year, don't scare me that much. Ben Sherrod and Shea Weber, with what they might be able to get away with, worry me a little bit. And some of this is just going to have to be Matthews and Marner, because I expect that'll be the match. Have to fight through it. And, and you know, I hate to sound like gruff old gym coach or anything but it's like you gotta just kind of pull up your socks and get down to business because that's how it is it's a physical game it doesn't mean that i think shea weber should have carte blanche and for the record i think shea weber has gotten away with a ton of bullshit over his career because he's a good old canadian boy but that is going to be something that we have to deal with um they're not the greatest puck movers anymore I, I mean, well, I don't know if Ben Sherratt was ever much of a puck mover, but on the forecheck, you definitely want to see if you can pressure these guys a little bit on their passing because they're physical. They can stand up to body checks. But is their decision-making that great at moving the puck? I don't know. Right. And, and when I say, you know, the Weber's skills are more offensive than defensive, like that, that's kind of what I mean. Like it, mm. Passing the puck or, or, or kind of breaking the puck out is actually a defensive skill in some sense. Yeah, like right. he's and fine when he gets to the offensive zone. Yeah. But he's very good getting there. when he gets yeah. to the offensive zone. Mm-hmm. Um, or I guess he, he's very good in terms of what he is able to do relative to other players when he gets into the offensive zone. But it still does result in the Habs having kind of a an antiquated shot profile when he's on the ice. It still is a lot of point shots. And, you know, the point shot is, is less than one half of the equation to the Habs' theory of getting 
decent offense from some players, right? It, mm-hmm. The point shot needs to happen, but they, they need the guys to get the rebounds. So the, the forwards are really a lot more important to that than, than Weber. Yeah. You specifically. Know, I'll say this. If Shea Weber had come up through the 90s, he would still have been a Hall of Fame player, but he would still be a monster because he would get away with absolute murder. He would still be able to do his slap shot thing with greater efficacy. He would be a terror even now. He is diminished from his peak. And it's this is the year that I think it's really come into focus because I've seen even the Habs starting to be like, he's not our best defenseman anymore, which I think is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and Truod is just kind of there. Yeah, he is, you know, he's a big guy. And that's a factor. This is a big top 40 defense. Like, I think they really prioritized size when they assembled it. Yeah, Sherrod was hurt for some time this year too, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he missed a chunk in the middle of the year. Yeah. As was Weber. Weber is just yeah. coming back now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so if there's rush there, that, that can also help. Um, you, you mentioned this, but just worth uh, stating again, th- this is what uh, this is the, the pairing used against top competition, usually. Yeah, and, you know, they'll do it. I, again, like, Weber is going to do some obstruction. Like, I, I feel like I'm hammering this point, but, like, it's sort of a get-ready thing because he is going to skirt the rules. That's what he does. That's what a lot of defensemen do, for the record. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Jake Musson is an angel, but that's going to be a big part of the strategy. And when the Athletics uh, beat reporter, again, this is Arpan Basu, who is a very good writer, by the way. You all should give him a look if you want to learn more. But he said, like, a big component of this strategy is be as physical as the refs will get you, will let you get away with, and maybe even a little bit more. And that's not incidental. That's not sort of like a sneaky side thing. That is a major component of what is likely to be their strategy. So Right. And it's, it's worth noting, the Habs did take an above-average amount of penalties in the regular season, and they, they draw a below-average amount. So they're, they're willing, in some sense, to take that trade-off of, okay, we're going to be on the power play less than our opponents are, in all likelihood. Mm-hmm. But we're gonna get. We're, we we think that works out better for us in terms of um, helping us at five on five because they're not gonna call us on everything. Right. Right. Well, I I I don't. The Habs have never publicly said that, but you can you can interpret their actions, um, or at least the actions of, of some of their defensemen, as kind of making that calculation of yeah, we're gonna be really really physical and we're gonna get called a little bit more than average. But we mm-hmm. think that works out for us because the times we don't get called, we're uh, we're gonna kind of frustrate your offense significantly i don't think it's a coincidence that they are a pretty good defensive team and that they take a lot of penalties like the two probably go hand in hand to some extent given the way that they've chosen to approach it Mm -hmm. um the second pairing is joel edmondson and jeff petrie jeff petrie is the guy that i was referencing in terms of one he's probably their best defenseman now and two he's their best puck mover he's actually like he's getting up there too he's 34 um, but he's had a great season, very productive, and he is big. He's not actually as physical, and that was uh, a mark against him earlier in his career. He is one of the very, very, very many good players that Edmonton has given up on over the years. But he is a good person to start breakouts. He he moves the puck well. Um, he's a good passer under pressure. He will get a fair number of assists, and. His pairing with Edmondson, who is kind of a, uh, not unlike Shirata, actually, who is just like a big 
defensive defenseman who has not had great results through his career. This year, Edmondson and Petrie have had good results. Um, I, I do think Petrie is a guy on the breakout that is going to be a go-to guy for the Habs. If you're the Leafs and you're forechecking, you want someone to barrel directly at Jeff Petrie as hard as they can and to really pressure him. It doesn't mean that he's going to totally wilt, but you want to make his life difficult because he's a focal point. Right. And uh, Petrie, along with Weber and Chirot, like that that's really the top three of the Habs defense. Edmonds mm-hmm. is, is... like Those three are used more even than Edmondson, who's on the same pair as Petrie. Right. Right, there's there's kind of a drop off in in playing time when you when you look at their their defense core uh, after a, after those three guys. Yeah, actually, this is a good point to mention. We've used the lines and the pairings as a frame for analysis here. Obviously, they're not set in stone. There are mixed shifts, there are partial shifts, and depending on how the coach wants to approach it, there can be a lot of different variations, even between these units. Like Mike Babcock famously used to have Morgan Riley and Jake Gardner as his top two defensemen in ice time while they almost never played on the same pairing. Like, he would rest other partners, but he tried to make it so that there was always one of them out as much as possible. So, yeah, it won't be quite as uh, as linear top to bottom, as this might make it sound, but Petrie is, uh, is a big deal for their defense and one of the team's strengths. The third pairing I do not expect to see all that much of unless somebody gets injured. And it, I put Brett Kulak and Alexander Romanov here because they're two of the available guys and because Kulak and Romanov make a funny Russian history joke together as a name. But the reality is they might not play. They might be, you, you know, turfed in favor of other depth defensemen. But whatever it is, I expect Ducharme to lean heavily on his top four. Um Especially he doesn't seem to trust young Alexander Romanov yet. You were remarking on this to me. He's just not. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. the, he's used in low-leverage situations. And, I mean, it, it's to be expected to some degree. Yeah, um, he's a rookie. When, when you have guys like Weber and, and Chirot. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, so, yeah. Interestingly, Edmondson gets used in some kind of late and close uh, situations as well, more, more so than Petrie. Yeah, you wonder uh, why they would do that, to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah, to be honest, that just seems like bad allocation of playing time to me because Petrie, if Petrie's your best puck movement guy, you want him in the defensive zone, actually, because he can help you get out of it. I know. Like, I know that this is uh, nerd thinking versus coach thinking to some extent because Edmondson projects solidity and he's Mr. Defense and all this sort of stuff. But, uh, like, I would play Jeff Petrie a lot given the choice. I would say he's kind of who I got going on, and then I'm going to throw Weber and Sherratt at whoever I most want to slow down. But anyway, that's uh, their approach. So expect to see a lot of that top four. And uh, that brings us around to the goalies. Yeah, so we haven't mentioned guys like uh, John Merrill or actually just John Merrill. Uh, yeah. he, he, he exists. I would be lying to you if I said I had a developed opinion of John Merrill other than his profile pick well, well, his hockey DB pick shows him in a mullet. It's wild. Mm, hey, yeah. Give it a look. Anyway, that's all we have to say about John Merrill. Uh, yeah, Price and Allen. Carey Price, the mythology of Carey Price. There are still people who believe he is the best goalie in the world. Most of them are NHL players. Yes, they are. There are still people who say, look, it comes down to game seven. 
Third period. I need someone to hold me in there. I want Carey Price. I will take no substitutes. I don't know. Look, the fact is, over the last few years, he hasn't played that well. He had a good qualifying round showing against Pittsburgh. That's Very true. good. Very good. Um, you know, probably won it for them, to be honest. And that deserves some respect. We still know that he's capable of being uh, quite good for stretches. And he was once the best goalie on the planet. That, that bears emphasis. He was once what he was reputed to be now. But I still find myself thinking that if he still had it, he would show more of it in the regular season. And I don't buy that he can flip the switch to get a lot better in the playoffs. He Maybe he is uh, a big moments guy. Maybe he will hold up better under the stress. I just, I don't think that I would, I would expect it. By hockey viz, Allen has been basically, Jake Allen has been basically average and Carey Price has been a little bit below average. And uh, I think they're going to need to be better than that in order to beat the Leafs. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, Price has also struggled with injuries this year and several years in the past. Right now, we're expecting him game one starter. Carey Price is still the man in Montreal, by the way, to the contract, if nothing else. But as we alluded to before, there are some models, including Dom Logicians, that think that the Habs are better off starting Jake Allen. And I think, you know, any model that looks at this year only would, would certainly say so. Um, anyway... That's kind of what it comes down to. We'll see. Uh, if Carey Price is rusty or struggles or something, I wouldn't be surprised to see Allen come out, but he he is their star, rain or shine. Um, looking at the, the totality of this, it's not too hard to imagine how they might beat the Leafs. And the elements that go into that are that a no-line puts the brakes on Matthews and Marner, the Habs depth outscores the kind of grab bag leaf third line and the old fourth line. The Habs defense looks better in a physical and grinding, loosely called environment. And Carey Price looks more like Price Classic. You can make a case for pretty much any team to beat pretty much any other team. Right. And so I'm when I point those things out, I'm saying here's how it might happen. Is that the most likely outcome? No, I don't think it is. The talent gap at forward between them and the Leafs is considerable. The defense is close, if not even, frankly. And Jack Campbell has actually played notably better than Gary Price this year. Track records be damned. So I don't expect this to be a walk unless the Habs are as bad as they looked with a bunch of their best players out. They probably won't. Again, they're getting guys back they didn't have. But the Leafs should win this series. Yes. Um, now, the season series was mm-hmm. 6-3 in the Leafs' favor, but basically every game was close. Um, there were f- very few blowouts. A lot of the goals were one-goal wins. So, like, you know, 6-3 is, is quite dominant against another team. You're winning two-thirds of the time. That's more than enough to win a playoff series. I think right, it was 7-3, wasn't it? I think they played 10. Did we play 10 times? Oh, yeah, 7-3. You're right. Sorry. Nice. Um, but, yeah. But, yeah, like, like it, it's... Um, you know, it was dominant in terms of the, the wins and losses, but the individual games were, were still fairly close. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even looking at that, like, don't expect... Even if the Leafs win in, like, five games or something, and I, I don't think that's the most likely outcome, but even if they win in five games, like, those games aren't probably not going to be just walkovers. Each game is individually probably going to be pretty close. Like, there, there's... Hockey's a, a random game. The Habs 
are good defensively still, and that can they can keep at low event, increases the variance. They, they have some things about them. The Leafs should be favored. That doesn't really guarantee anything, but yeah. it's We're at this kind of unfair point with the Leafs, where we recognize, okay, they're favored. They've done what they could in the regular season. And now we have, you know, a weighted coin, a 70% weighted coin. And if it comes up, you know, heads, comes up the 70% side, we're happy. And if it comes up the 30% side, uh, we're really, really unhappy. And we're going to ask a lot of really hard questions about the team. And it, it, it's, it's unfair in the sense that, you know, the Leafs could play well and lose. Yeah. Right? And the, the random things can happen. The Leafs, Matthews could get injured game one. And, mm-hmm. you know, shit can go really awry. Um. But at the end of the day, we, we've run out of excuses. This isn't going to get any easier. As much as I respect the Habs, and I do think they're a good team, I do think some fans are underrating them. I don't think this is going to be an easy series at all, mm-hmm. um, even though I do think the Leafs are favored. You know, it, it's, we, we've run out of excuses. They're, at the end of the day, this is a 1-4 matchup. The Habs are one of the worst playoff teams. They, they backed into the playoffs, having played really badly for the past six weeks yes they've been missing guys but if you miss brendan gallagher if you miss one first line player and your team falls apart that says something about the rest of your team or at least it, it should like the, you know brendan gallagher is not a 15 win player mm-hmm. so yeah this is you can talk yourself into reasons the habs are a good team and reasons they can win any team can win against any team we've i think we've made that clear mm-hmm. but the leafs are never going to get a better chance than this to, to, to make it past the first round, to make it deep even, you know, looking beyond this series. Yeah. Right? Um, you, you look at teams like um, at Florida who are having to face Tampa. Like, a good team is going home round one there. A really good team is going home round one. Minnesota, Vegas, a good team is going home round one. Right? Those, yeah. are, those are tough matchups. Leafs against Boston, those were matchups where you're like, man, that, like, that sucks. That's a, those are two good teams. Those teams both have potential. The Habs, as much as I respect them, are probably not a contender. Mm-hmm. This is a team where you, ha- you, you have to beat them. There, there's, you know, yes, things can go bad, but also there's no excuses, which is inherently contradictory, but that's, that's with the NHL playoffs. Yeah, we've, like, we've accepted this is how it is. This is what matters, wins or losses. Show what you got to go home, and even if you get dinged by luck, you know, you could say that the Leafs had a great chance of beating Columbus and Boston and Boston again, but... This is it. And so if there is a big difference between the playoffs and the regular season, you almost have to assume that there is to, to, to talk yourself into a bigger chance for the Habs. But even then, you're hoping that guys like Nick Felino and Wayne Simmons and Joe Thornton uh, are going to provide whatever intangible element is needed to get through this. I really do not think you can ask for too much more out of a matchup than this. Like, yeah, like you'd love to face the Buffalo Sabres round one, but there's a reason those teams don't pl- make the playoffs. This should be... Right, like the, 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 the best case scenario is you face an average team, right? You know, the, the, the yeah. worst team in the NHL playoffs is still an average team by the standings, generally speaking. Right, and average yeah. teams are not... They're, they're, they're not featureless. They have, they have some good things about them. Just like they yeah. have to. like if we were profiling Winnipeg, who I think would have actually been our, our easiest option... But we still would have said, look, they're a good rush team. They have great goaltending from Connor Hellebuck. They have Nick Ehlers, who is 
a, a dynamic and dangerous guy who doesn't need that many opportunities to change a game. We could see how the opposite would happen, but we would be saying, okay, but the Leafs need to take care of business. And against the Habs, they're a tough team. They're deep at forward to some extent. They are going to be a very hard team to blow out, but you got to take care of fucking business. Leafs in six. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's just a couple kind of final notes I wanted to, to add. These are just kind of odds and ends that didn't really fit into our general structure of going through uh, the lines. The Habs are uh, not a good team playing from behind. Yes. As, as we've mentioned a couple times, even when they're at their best, their offense is, you know, it, it's never sustained a full season of being great, right? Uh, it, it's been good and primarily volume-based at times, but it, it's never truly, truly, truly elite, especially when you factor in finishing chances. Um, so, yeah, the, you, you know, just from junk, you want them to play from behind. Uh, but also when you look at the, how their play driving changes by score state, when when they're tied, they're kind of a league average offensive team who really shuts other teams down defensively. When they go down, they're off. Normally, you see offenses kind of cra- uh, sorry, kind of boost, and then defenses crater as teams are willing to trade off more chances because they need they just need to get offense. Mm-hmm. Um, the Habs just like kind of capitulate and die. It seems <laughs> went, went down, which is not great. Uh, conversely. And remember, their overall numbers are still decent. So conversely, that means when they get a lead, they're actually just very, very good. Yeah. So you really don't want to play from behind against them. So, you know, it's kind of a cliche that first goals are important. Well, all goals are important, and the first goal guarantees you have a lead. So, of course, it's important. Um, but in this sense, it actually kind of is important, right? That The Habs are not a team you want to get behind on. If you can jump out and get a couple quick goals on them, you can kill games before they ever really start. Mm-hmm. So... And, and this is also, by the way, why their goaltending kind of matters so much. It, you know, if, if Price isn't very good and they fall into holes, it, it's tough for them to crawl out of them. Um, I mentioned the, the penalty thing uh, of the Habs taking penalties. You know, I just really hope the Leafs can, can sort their shit out on the power play. It, you know, our power play hasn't been very good. It only takes one or two to change a series, though. So, mm-hmm. you know, just fingers crossed there. And Come on, guys. Yeah, similar. I have a similar prediction to you. Like, I think the most likely outcome is Leafs in six, um, mm-hmm. and you know, Leafs in seven, Leafs in five, kind of equally likely. And then all the Habs options. I don't think it's going to be a sweep uh, in either direction. I think it's fairly unlikely. But yeah, then all the Habs options kind of go from there. So you know, there's a non-negligible chance of the Habs winning, even if you are as bullish on the Leafs as say Dom Nutrition's model, and you say, okay, eighty-three percent chance. Well, you know, that's a one in six chance of it not happening. That happens. That's rolling a six on a, on a dice. We've all rolled a six on a dice before. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, this is this is it. This is a, the, the No Excuses series, basically. Mm-hmm. As weird a year as this has been, the Leafs have everyone that they should have anticipated. They have an opponent they should have seen coming. They have basically every reason to win this series. And I think that there are Leaf fans who are understandably very leery of that because the Leafs have been in situations where they had every reason to win before <laughs> that with 10 minutes left, and, and they didn't. But the fact remains, if you look at this cold-eyed, rational, trying not to be emo- like emotional and pessimistic about it, and I know that we're all tempted, but if you try and look at it straight on, the Leafs should win. That's our bottom line here. 
So, yeah. Now you better fucking do it, guys. Because I've had enough of losing the first round. <laughs> yeah, it, this, mm. you know, if in two weeks we have a, a podcast titled What Went Wrong, it's going to be a very long and not very fun and so, uh, a very somber analysis of like, okay, well, where do we go from here? Because there's going to be a lot of hard Then we trade William Melander, and I'm not kidding. I'm yeah. not saying that I want to, but I think that that'll probably be what happens. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess it depends on the nature. I, I really don't want to litigate the nature. Yeah, you know of what? The, the let's not go into that, because this is, this is a conversation we never want to have to have. So yeah. let's hope that it just never comes up. Yeah. There, there, yeah. Look, there's expectations when you play as the favorite. It's a weird position for us to be in. The Leafs have not worn this tag well in the past. They've not deserved this tag well, and when they have deserved it, um, they haven't worn it well. Mm. So, yes, it's nerve-wracking, but that's hockey. I think, you know, we need to trust this team. They've done well this year. They've done, they've done everything they can. They just need to do it a few more times. Yep. Great. And there we are. Yep. So, uh, that's all we have for you uh, for today. We'll have our kind of standard playoff um, schedule, which is we'll, we'll try and basically have a recap for every single game. Um, obviously, scheduling stuff can, can get in the way, but that's what, we're, we'll, that's what we'll try to do. And, of course, Pencil Pen Puppets is going to have all the coverage you need as well. We'll have recaps up, you know, minutes after the games, features, analysis, all those sorts of things. And you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's stuff there as well as, you know, our host of other phenomenal writers. Um, and you can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. Thank you for listening. Go Leafs go. We'll see you after game one.